we hear our story. We go to a meeting and we hear our story. And I think that's one of the things that really spurred me on, too, to stay sober is, is when you first start drinking, you feel like you're different, you don't fit in, nobody else does this. But then when you go to AA and hear people talk, you're like, crap, I'm not the only guy. Welcome to the Recovery Edge cast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. Today we're joined by Rod Kay. I know Rod from the Tuesday night group in Frederick, the uh, Thirst Quenchers, and I've uh, known him for a couple of years now. He's been a really cool voice in the rooms, and I think you guys are going to get a kick out of his story as much as we get a kick out of his shares. So without further ado, let's get started. So give us a rundown on what things are like today. Today, I got to say my life is... Uh... Very blessed. Um, I'm retired, um, financially independent, have two great children, two great grandsons. A year ago, I met a lady, and that's what's causing the move. I'm moving to Littleton, Colorado uh, at the end of the month. So I've got excitement as well as uh, just a steady base around me. Nice. Have you scoped out the meetings out there? Littleton? Actually, I went to one, and I forget the name of it right now, but it was a Wednesday night meeting down in Littleton. Yeah, it was at a little club, kind of on 470 and Platte Canyon. Yeah. Yeah, it was small, but it was nice. Yeah, and it's actually a big book meeting, so that's that's really nice to go through occasionally. Is They were doing Step 12 that night, so... But in a 12 by 12, that's like 21 pages, so... Wow. It was a lot of reading. <laughs> When's your sober date, and where's your home group today? Um, I got sober 9-28-1987, and uh, my home group is, of course, uh, Tritown Thirst Quenchers up here in Frederick, Colorado. Okay, so 1987, how many years is that then? Through right at 33 and a half at the end of March, so yeah. 33 and a half, congratulations. Thank you, yeah. I think that you're warmed up right now do you feel warmed up i do why don't you give us the rundown on what it was like before what happened and what it's like today all right um i was raised in uh wheat ridge colorado right outside of denver um family of four i had one sister who's a year older uh looking back i think my father uh was an alcoholic um He, however, is a maintenance drinker, so I never saw him really lose control, but uh, I watched him drink almost every day. I felt like uh, things were sometimes uh, not real quiet and easy going around our house. My father had quite a temper, and uh, my parents would get mad at each other and they wouldn't speak for for weeks at a time so there was always a lot of tension in the house and uh, when they weren't talking we just didn't know what to do you know it was uh, kind of a crazy situation um, I remember my first drink uh, my dad used to mow the lawns on Saturdays and then he'd come in and uh, uh, watch Major League Baseball on TV and he'd always have a beer well, sometimes I'd sit down to watch with him, and he'd give me a little glass of beer. And I can remember from the first taste that uh, 
once I had that first taste of beer, I want, and the feeling that it gave me, I wanted more. So, and that was early on. I mean, I was probably eight, maybe, something like that. Um, during my junior high years, I used to uh, uh, have a paper route in Denver. So back then, what you did at the end of the month is you'd go out in the evenings and you'd uh, go to house to house and collect what they owed you for the paper. And uh, what I used to do is uh, I'd find an empty cough medicine bottle or something in the house and I'd wash it out. And then when my parents were around, I were not around, I'd uh, fill it up with whiskey, my dad's whiskey. So when I was out collecting about, when I was about age 14, I'd be out drinking whiskey and I'd walk down two blocks to the drugstore and buy some cigars. So here's a 14-year-old kid that weighs 95 pounds that's mm -hmm. drinking whiskey, smoking cigars, and carrying around a bank bag of $120 back in 1970. So kind of a crazy life. You think about that. If my kids yeah. were doing that, I'd be a little bit worried. <laughs> uh, but my parents drank and smoked, so they never really knew what was going on. Mm. So um, I don't know. My upbringing was pretty normal, I guess, except for the family dynamic. Um, I guess about the time I started driving, uh, I made arrangements from friends that had older brothers and stuff to get us beer and things. And uh, I'd go to high school football games and get smashed and drunk. And I remember I had my first blackout at age 16. Uh, went to the game and drank some beer and woke up the next day wondering how I got home and if my car was in the driveway and some friends had taken me home and opened the front door and thrown me in on the floor basically and threw the keys in and locked the door, kept me safe. So uh, that was the first of many, many blackouts that was a ha habit throughout the years. Um, I didn't feel like I was really out of control. I th and maybe it was just the, the crowd I was hanging with. Uh, I was doing what I thought every kid was doing, you know, sneaking a little beer and drinking, going to dances in high school and drinking Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill and beer and things like that. Uh, I managed to keep pretty good grades and I uh, graduated from Jefferson High School in Edgewater and went to Colorado State. And I thought still I was a typical college student because, you know, course adding to the mix in college into the alcohol then you add in marijuana first and then later on the the speed and then the cocaine and then the psilocybin mushrooms and the experimenting with all that stuff uh, but it was still basically on an experimental basis everything but drugs with except for marijuana and alcohol I mean that was a constant but uh, we used to have a little uh Lazy Susan coffee table that we had a bong on, so we were always passing the bong and it, me and my roommates and playing backgammon or something, you know, on off time and playing cards. And so it was kind of fun and games till then. Um, met my first wife in high school. We dated while I was in college, and then uh, when I graduated, uh, we got married two weeks after I graduated college, um, and I really didn't have a, a good job. I was working at a bar in Fort Collins, and uh, 
I guess I should backstep and tell you that I started bartending. I started working in restaurants and stuff when I was in high school and college, and then uh, the day I turned 21, they made me a bartender at this restaurant I was working at. So that was a natural fit for me because every mistake, you know, waitresses come up sometimes and they order the wrong thing, and you pour it, and then they come back and say that was the wrong order. Mm. And, of course, it's the obligation of the bartender to then drink that mistake. (laughs) Uh, So it was a natural fit for me, uh, drinking and partying um, and working and get paid for at the same time was kind of a win-win for me. So um, after we got married, I was working in a bar in Fort Collins and actually started managing as well as bartending. And uh, that's when I really started, I think, after college was over, sliding down the slope. Um, my wife was working different shifts. She wasn't home a lot. So after work, I'd go party with the, the bar crowd and some of the coworkers. And uh, then the cocaine was really more prevalent in that atmosphere. And we did it at work. We did it after work. And I remember working and then drinking at work because we could drink on duty at this bar. And managers could drink for free. So once again, I always seemed to find a way to to feed my addiction and do it uh, while working and making money and drinking at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was really, looking back, I guess it was something I maneuvered. I'm not sure. Yeah, funny how that happens. It isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so then, yeah, I was doing more drugs and, and drinking constantly. And uh, I actually remember... Back in those days, you know, like Sports Illustrated magazine and stuff would still have um, alcohol advertising in it, you know, like Wild Turkey or Jim Beam or something. And I remember getting a marketing phone call from someone just to ask me how much my how much I drank and my behaviors, and you know. And uh, this lady said, "Well, how many drinks do you have a week?" And I thought about it and then said. over 50 and then you know I didn't think anything of it but then later on I was replaying that conversation in my head and I'm like you know 50 that doesn't really sound normal (laughs) you know that sounds like quite a bit when you start tallying them up so, there was no response from the phone from this lady when you said uh, that? You no, know, no, not not judgmentally. She was just yeah. like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, I was thinking, ching you know, She's probably heard it before, that's why. <laughs> right? <laughs> Wasn't a shocker. That's correct, yeah. So so I think that was the first time that maybe that a seed was planted that I was mm-hmm. not normal. Yeah. yeah, when you, almost like you put it out there and got to look at it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there was reality at that point then. It's mm. like, oh, shoot, this isn't so cool. Mm. Well, so then um, one of the managers at the bar I was working at got a job with the Bennigan's restaurant chain. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. Bennigan's Tavern. Yeah. Um, so he got me an interview, and I got on with Bennigan's and the management team, and uh, moved. we moved from Fort Collins then to Aurora, and then to Albuquerque and then to Houston and then the College Station. I was moving up in the restaurant business, but it required a lot of moves, which was really okay for me because 
you could kind of leave the past behind. I had a kind of a um, geographic escape, you know. You, you'd leave and leave everything behind, and then every time I'd go to a new city, I think I'd get a fresh new start. Well, it wasn't. And Rod Kirby always got out of the car or off the plane wherever <laughs> I, I ended up. Um, so, you know, and then being in the restaurant business and being in my early 20s and a lot of uh, young waitresses and hostesses and drinking involved it uh, is hard on the marriage because the infidelity started and then mm. there's you know you close down the bar with the closing waitress and then you ask her for a drink you know if she wants to have a drink and then pretty soon it's three in the morning and then well you know yeah. i don't need to go, <laughs> go oh, further but yeah on the marriage. so so there was there was that there was the infidelity there was the geographic escape uh and just, it was just a constant battle and a always sick and tired, you know. Uh, so finally, uh, we decided down in, we were in College Station, Texas, and we decided to come back home. My wife missed her folks, and uh, my son had been born in Albuquerque, and he was a year old, and decided to give up the restaurant business and came back to Denver, went to work for the Postal Service. And we both did, my wife and I both. So then we had a better income and a union jobs and things were moving along and we actually purchased a house. And But you know, the the outside of the house was perfect. It was a nice red brick house with a picket fence, a white picket fence, nicely painted and the yard was manicured and everything looked wonderful on the outside, but on the inside was complete chaos because of my drinking and so the thing happened at work is you work an eight-hour shift and, you know, you meet new co-workers and then pretty soon they say, you want to stop for a beer after work, sure. And uh, one turns into a dozen or 16 if you're like me. I mean, so I'm calling home. I'm getting off at 3.30 and I'm calling home at 5 saying, I stopped for a beer, I'm having one more. And then I'm calling at 7 saying... I'm going to have one more, and then I'm calling at 9.30. Yeah. <laughs> Saying I'm going to have one more, you know. And, <laughs> and, and so that was hard on the marriage. It was really hard on the marriage. And uh, it was just hard on life in general. So I did maintain, um, you know, I was a good employee and um, didn't get in much trouble at work and managed to... Uh, do things like coach my son's soccer team. And he was six at the time then. Um, and I'm coaching his soccer team, and he's going to first grade. Well, something about him going to first grade was like, I don't want this madness to be exposed. I don't want the school or the teachers or someone calling me up and saying, what's going on over at that house there? Because... You know, your son's having issues or, or whatever, because I was still drinking and drinking heavy, drinking mm -hmm. every day. Um, and I would try to drink something else or change from beer to wine or change from a 12-pack to a quart. I thought if I could just bring home a quart of beer, well, I'd drink the quart of beer, and then my wife worked nights, so she was sleeping. So then I'd throw my son in the car and drive to the liquor store and get another quart. And then 
and this was back, you know, 86, 87, seatbelts, we didn't wear them that much. You know, my son started to get old enough that he'd say, Dad, seatbelt. But, mm. you know, I'm throwing him in the car and we're driving to the liquor store, putting his life in jeopardy. And so all of that just started, to, you know, how it kind of weighs on you after mm-hmm. a while. The, just the, the craziness and the, the, uh, the merry-go-round that you can't get off, you know. You don't want to drink, but then you start feeling better after noon and in the afternoon, and then you're having a good day, and then you drink some more, and then you drink till midnight, and then the next day you feel like crap in the morning, and then swear you're not going to do it again. And by afternoon, you're doing it again, and it's just like, ah. So anyway, my my son was in first grade. I was working. I was on that merry-go-round, and I just... And because of the, I think the years before, the little seed that was planted about how much I was drinking, I was really, really thinking and starting to think that I had a problem. But now you have to understand, this is probably seven years going now where I understood I had a problem. I hadn't done anything about it except continue to drink and continue to, to experience unmanageabilities, you know, and drunk bumps on your car and those days you go to the gas pump and just quite, can't quite make the turn around the concrete barrier, you know, and you put a dent in your car mm. and hitting the edge of the garage door going in or hitting the mailbox at the end of the driveway, you know, all those things happened. Um, I could drive across the state of Colorado and all back roads and <laughs> I had that down <laughs> and, you know, I never really got a, a DUI, which is just the grace of God, but because I drank drunk or drove drunk thousands of times. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Uh, so anyway, it was 1987, and I'm I'm working, and I just can't do it anymore. I just... One day, uh, we used to get paid uh, bi-weekly at the Postal Service, and one Friday with the paycheck, there was a little... Uh, brochure they handed out it was uh, Mile High Council on Alcoholism and it had a phone number well I kind of set it aside but then the next week I had another week where wanted to go home but didn't and stayed out too late blah 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 Uh, so about a week after I got that little brochure I got up for work one day and I just couldn't make it. I just didn't know what was going on. I just said, God, I guess. So I went for a drive in the mountains and I just went AWOL at work. I didn't show up for my shift. Didn't tell my wife I was leaving. I just went to Buena Vista and spent the night and tried to do some soul searching, I guess, and trying to figure out where I was. Well, I came back on Saturday or Sunday and still hadn't called into work, so I missed a couple days. And then uh, told my wife where I was and that I was struggling and ended up going to work the next day. And uh, they were okay at work and you know, they, I signed my leave slip and they gave me two days of vacation and they kind of was like, okay, you know, don't do that again, not just show up. But, so, then I'm working, and the same boys are coming to me and say, you know, you want to stop for one today? And I'm like, 
No, but that, come on, just one. And so what did I do? I went out and stopped with the boys and ended up drinking shooters and getting drunk downtown and downtown Denver and uh, so sick that I had to call in sick again the next day for work because I partied all night. And, uh, and that was the day I made the call to Mile High Council on Alcoholism and after talking with them through my insurance and stuff, they got me into a treatment center, St. Luke's, in Denver, and that the, my insurance would pay for. So um, I went into a 28-day inpatient program on September 28, 1987. So, uh, and I remember the intake there. The the intake nurse or, or professional was asking me, you know, how much do you drink, you know? 10 drinks a week, no more, 20 more, 30 more, 40, no, 50, yeah, 50 plus. And, and she's like, you know, that's not normal, Rod. Normal drinkers have a drink on their birthday <laughs> <laughs> or a holiday. And I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound normal. <laughs> right, not for me, not for our normal anyway. So, uh, but yeah, so... And I was really blessed that I found the treatment center in St. Luke's because they had a cha uh, chapel there. And so sometimes I could go downstairs, they give you an hour off or whatever, I'd go downstairs to the chapel. And I think that's really where I found God, and God really helped me. Um, and I remember during that 28 days, of course we had AA meetings every day, and we had counseling and, and our own group, and we worked through the first three steps, of course, in 28 days, and... Uh, you wrote out your first step and your unmanageabilities and all that stuff. But I remember somewhere in the midst of that, those 28 days, that uh, one of the counselors came up to me and said, you got it. I'm like, what? She says, I can see it. I can see in your eyes that you found God. And I'm like, wow. You know, so it was evident and, and it happened to me and it was just a blessing. So, and the Postal Service had actually, at the time, it was before the Employee Assistance Program, they had a program that was called PAR, Postal Alcoholic Recovery. And so, when I went in a treatment center, they contacted the Postal Service, and one of the administrators of that PAR program came to visit me and uh, became kind of like, almost like a sponsor, but you know, kind of your coordinator on your recovery. So when I got out, I, I kept, um, stayed involved with uh, St. Luke's in an aftercare program. My wife and I went to an aftercare program for probably a year and a half. Um, and then I was meeting with the guy in postal alcoholic recovery and then one of my other coworkers I found out was sober and had been sober a year and a half, I think. And I asked him to sponsor me. So I got a sponsor. Um, started to go to meetings. I didn't go every day, but I probably went three times a week to AA meetings. And I actually cleared a lot of my, my home responsibilities, like I hired out my lawn maintenance and stuff that first summer just so... Um, I could go to a lot of AA meetings. And so I was really, really involved and really dove in and, uh, and took it serious. And there was a club uh, 
in Wheat Ridge, the Alano Club, and it was it was a club. So you go up some steps in the back of a strip mall, and it was always open. And there's always somebody working the counter to give you a coke or a cup of coffee. And in between meetings, you could sit there in a safe place or wait for the next meeting. And that's really kind of where I got sober in the Alano Club and the, and the sponsors um, from the post office. So I had a three or four pronged approach, you know, uh, four-legged stool. I had aftercare, I had par, I had a sponsor, I had AA. Um, five, I guess, I had God. God was already with me, so I remember one of the big presentations at the treatment center was step two. The, the guy who had started the treatment center came to us and spoke to us, and he was really charismatic and had a you know a great presentation and he just came up to the microphone and said came to believe <laughs> you know and then mm -hmm. told the story and uh, and that's really that really hit home too is coming to the believe um, that there's something out there because you know I say this because of my experience in AA you know we're we're different and um I think most of us alcoholics in recovery are very strong-willed and we're very smart and we're very funny and but we just can't stay sober on our own. Um, I know I'm strong-willed and I can pretty much do anything I set my mind to but uh, I couldn't stay sober. So you really have to come to believe that there's something else out there and somebody can help you. So. So that's the story of getting sober. I mean, staying sober over the years. I've moved some still, even with the Postal Service. I moved some cities. Um, my daughter was born when I was sober. Um, shortly after that, my first wife and I got divorced. And I really think moving from alcoholic to sobriety changed the dynamic of our family relationship. I really think she liked it better when I wasn't involved in a lot of home issues. She liked me gone. And hmm. um, when I got sober and started getting involved at home and saying, no, I'm part of this decision-making too, and I think we should you know, do this or that with the kids and put them in this school or that school, um, it just didn't work. So hmm. we moved on. Um, I stayed sober through that divorce and was a single parent, you know, we shared custody, so I'd have my kids a couple nights a week and every other weekend, and that's that's a tough dynamic too, but I really, looking back, my kids and I are close, I think, from the time we spent together, so um, got married again, had a stepdaughter, uh, that marriage lasted about 13 years, and then she decided to move on. So I got divorced again. and So there's been ups and downs in sobriety. And of course, you know, one of the old friends I used to drink with the post office committed suicide. And uh, so there's ups and downs in, in life and in sobriety. And, and what you have to learn is you can get through them without that numbing medicine or that, you know, that escape to alcoholism or drugs or 
drugs and alcohol, uh, you can get through the hard things. And uh, yeah, it hurts and it sucks to feel the feelings. But after you've done one or two, um, you realize that there's not much that can make you drink if, if you don't want to. And, uh, and I always realize, you know, what's, is drinking going to make any of this better? No, it just usually digs the hole deeper or makes more problems or something else to apologize or make amends for, Mm. you know? So I managed to stay sober over the years. Uh, sometimes I was really involved in AA and sometimes I wasn't and I could stay sober, but I think the quality of life was not as good if I wasn't uh, really involved in an AA program. I think I can, I can go on dry drunks that can last a year or two. And uh, Rod becomes a much more uh, temperamental, angry person uh, when I don't go to AA. Um, so going to AA and then you know raising your hand to be a sponsor and trying to help others and I sponsored the first couple of guys I sponsored, you know, didn't make it. And then I'm wondering, I suck at being a sponsor, you know, I suck in sobriety. I, I'm just no good at this, but it, it's not about me really. And, and a lot of people don't make it. I think, I think mm-hmm. the, the point is that you just try to help somebody and always be willing to help somebody if they reach out and plant the seed and give them what you can. And then I found out if I go to to AA more and have more quality sobriety, it's a lot easier to pass that on. So, and I think they can feed on that and feel that when you're working with somebody, when they know you're sincere and that you're really living the program. And instead of just, you know, telling them, well, now you need to work step four. <laughs> you know, you can talk about your experience doing that and how you felt and the pitfalls and those things because... When it comes down to sobriety, I really think step four is the make or break it point. I've watched a lot of people come and go. And yeah, they can get one, two, and three, but then they go back out. So I think taking that personal inventory, fearless and honestly, and yeah, it can get a little uncomfortable at times because you start listening your resentments and some of the things you did, and then you're like, whoa, I'm not really a very good person, you know. Uh, but it's what's really cool when I shared my first first fourth step with my sponsor, and we sat there probably in his house for, I don't know, three and a half, four hours mm-hmm. going through it. And then when I got to the end, he just walked across the room and gave me a hug. You know, said, I love you, man. So that's what it's all about because we're all, we're not perfect and we've all done things. And um, what's good about other alcoholics is they don't judge because we've all been there. And you know how it is. We, uh, we hear our story. We go to a meeting and we hear our story. And I think that's one of the things that really spurred me on too to stay sober is, is when you first start drinking, you feel like you're different. You don't fit in. Nobody else does this. But then when you go to AA and hear people talk, you're like, crap, I'm not the only guy. You know, everybody, there's people like this. They're telling my story that they've done maybe worse or not as bad. But And they're look at them now and you see people, you know, 10, 20 years sober and they're successful and they got that 
sparkle in their eye and they can share honestly and share love. So, um, yeah, we got to get through this together, all of us. I mean, and, and every meeting, it does. sometimes you can learn more from the guy on day three than you can from the person on year 40. <laughs> um, and it's really important for me to see the the new people come in and the freshness and keep it fresh and take me back to September 28th, 1987, you know, when they're walking in the first time and the courage it takes to admit that you're alcoholic and come in and ask for help. And I, I think that's just admirable in people and I know it takes a lot of courage. And I know my first summer I sat there at meetings and my hands were sweaty and I was saying, God, I hope they don't call on me. I don't want to share. I don't know what to say. You know, and then after a while, it it gets to be where you go to a meeting and you start squirming in your chair because you're ready to talk and tell your story or add <laughs> something to the to whatever the subject is of that day or, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So here I sit few years sobriety under my belt and um, I'm working with others and I've sponsored a few people out of Frederick and some have made it some had hadn't and uh, we're still moving along with the ones that have stepped back and we're working on progress not perfection mm -hmm. and, um, but I think yeah I mean if it wasn't for God you have to find God in your higher power and for me the my higher power is God and I really think uh, finding a sponsor, working the steps, doing that fourth step, sharing it with somebody, then sharing it with God, and then you can move on, and then you can start changing your life, and then then you can work that tenth step all the time. You know, when you're wrong, you promptly admit it. Now I say promptly; it doesn't say immediately. So that tenth step sometimes is, you know, you say something or you do something, and then. It takes me 24, sometimes 48 hours of introspection and some work to really inventory that. And then, yeah, if I'm wrong, I, I admit it. Go back and make amends or talk to somebody and say, you know, I'm sorry, I was a jerk. You know, And I don't, I don't add the butts in. I was a jerk, but I was going through, no, no. That's just, I was out of line. So I apologize and... You know, that's how I live my life today. and I'm just blessed. I mean, I have a great relationship with my children. Um, I have two grandsons, and they were over this weekend, and there's fingerprints everywhere. And, but I smile <laughs> when I see them, and uh, they're just wonderful young. You know, they're three and five and hmm. rambunctious boys. And so, yeah, I have no complaints. And, and it really is uh, sobriety in the way you learn how to live, you know. It's different. We have to live different than the normal people. And rigorous honesty and faith in a higher power. And I get up in the mornings usually and um, spend some time in Scripture or with God and you know, ask Him to, to help me today. Usually I start with gratitude, thanking in God for everything He's given me. Because if you look around and change the lenses, you know... I have a sign on my, my wall that says, gratitude turns what we have into enough. So um, when you think about it, you have enough and God's given you enough. And if you change that lens from resentment or 
why me and to God, look at all the blessings I do have. It changes your daily living and it's easy to go on. And then when you meet those people that are struggling, sometimes you can say, yeah, but look at the good side. Look what you do have. Look what you haven't lost yet or you don't want to lose that. Let's, uh, let's work on the good stuff. So for me, changing the lenses in the morning from resentment or pity pot to gratitude really does the deal for me. So, um, yeah. If you could give yourself a piece of advice in your first year, what would that be? Well, I think there's a couple things necessary um, in your first year. One, you really have to change uh, playgrounds and playmates. I think uh, when you're coming out of an addiction and coming out of alcoholism, whatever, there's a lot of people that you think are your friends, maybe the people you drink with, um, unless you're sitting at home and drinking. But, I mean, if you're drinking with some people... They're really not your friends. They're just people that want you, that want to drag you down with them. You know, the guys that say, let's stop for one after work because they're unhappy or whatever, or they're alcoholics. I think you need to be aware of that. Two, you need to surround yourself with sober people, and AA does that. Um, you need, and even if you just go into a club or a meeting and just sit there and listen, um, there's going to be people that come up to you and talk to you and want to know your story and, you know, get comfortable and tell your story. Um, your story is not a bad thing. I think your story is part of what is so good about AA is if you can tell your story and, and talk in a meeting and let somebody hear uh, what you're going through because it's not different. I mean, it's, it's somebody else's story. We're all there together. But you have to, yeah, um, find a sponsor, start working the steps, um, have somebody you can talk to. Uh, and if you need to, I mean, if you go to a treatment center or aftercare programs, I mean, A is not the total answer. There's other programs, counseling, there might be other issues, family issues or whatever um, that you need counseling. Just... Just realize that you're not alone and take the steps. There's help out there in AA counseling, whatever. And if you go to talk to your doctor and if you're anxious or whatever, you know, if, if you need a little bit of medication to help you, anti-anxiety medication or something, you know, it's all part of the program. You can do it and you can stay sober, I think. Uh, but you got to surround yourself with people that are sober. And uh, learn how to have fun, again, without drugs and alcohol. I mean, learn how to have fun eating cupcakes and drinking coffee at an AA meeting or just talking or, or going to the AA picnic and throwing horseshoes with sober people. All that kind of stuff. Um, and just, just remember to live one day at a time. Just don't drink today sometimes. I know sometimes when you first start, you're white-knuckled. I mean, you're just hanging on. Just don't drink. Talk to somebody. Go to a meeting. Don't drink that day. Pretty soon you start stacking up days behind you and you haven't had a drink and uh, you've made it through a couple of situations. And I think every one of those, every one of those experiences is adding to the insurance policy of not drinking, that you make it through something, you know, whether it's 
the hot water heater going out and you drink over it or you got a promotion at work and you didn't drink over it. Because for me, good days and bad days are just as dangerous. The really good days I want to celebrate and the bad days I want to kill the pain. So um, getting through all that, that was more than just one thing of advice. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. That's okay. Uh, yeah. it's. Uh, but be careful of, of the old playmates because they'll pull you back down. And you have to learn to live a different life. Um, and there's people out there that really care about you. And you can find... You can find friendship and you can find compassion and love in AA. Um, and certainly you find it with God if you let God work in your life and ask him. So, yeah. Can you summarize your story in one or two sentences? Wow. I guess for me, um, it was the angry, resentful person that always looked at somebody else's life and said, I wish I had that. Why, why don't I have that? They're so lucky. And now I'm the grateful person that says, uh, let me help somebody else get there. Um, let me give them a hand up or be a shoulder to cry on or to listen to, I guess. Uh, and my family says, this is the new... Uh, kindler, gentler rod is what they say. Hmm. So yeah, I guess it's from from hot-tempered, angry to kinder or gentler. Four words. Well, thank you for sitting down and sharing your story today. Oh, you're welcome. I love it. Now you have a bird back there? Two. There's, two okay, two birds. There's two zebra finches, and I, they're probably coming through on the the audio. Oh, yeah. They're sharing their story as well. They do. Yeah. They support me. Nice. (laughs) Um, and for fun these days, you like to sing every Um, now and then? I, I play the organ. I play baritone ukulele. Um, the organ I played when I was a kid and my sister got it from my parents when they passed and she Mm. never played it. So about six months ago, she said, do you want, want the organ? I said, yeah, bring it up. So I just turned it on and started grabbing the old music and started playing. And then two years ago, my daughter and her husband bought me a baritone ukulele, and I had never played a string instrument before, and I just picked it up and started playing. So, yeah, I, I play music and sing and... Sometimes I send out silly videos of myself singing to my friends yeah. and my family, and they love it. So, Thank you, Rod, for sitting down and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us today on the Recovery Edgecast. You can find more episodes at recoveryedgecast.com, also on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to enjoy your podcasts. But before we close out, Ladies and gentlemen, Rod K. I've always been labeled to rip, roar, and hell 
like living and dying, we're all spent eternity. What kind of reward, Jesus, you got out on me? Down here on earth, there's a big price on my head. And I have my friends and my loved ones cry when I'm dead. And someday we'll all sing along from the other side. I hear that everyone's wanted Find your heavenly gates in the sky What kind of reward, Jesus, have you got out on me? poster to read and oh how I'd love to be taken into your custody what kind of reward Jesus have you got out Have you got on me?